Well, let's look at our scripture as we continue our sermon series on the kingdom of God. Um, this is on page four. And I will preface this sermon by saying it's probably one of the most important sermons I've ever preached here at Redeemer. And seeing as I've preached probably 375 of them, uh, that's pretty important that I would say that. Now, you may ask why. And the answer will be because if you grasp this, if you understand what Jesus is saying in this parable, uh, it really will revolutionize how you view God and how you view this world. Uh, it certainly is doing so in my life. So this is Matthew 21 through 16, found on page four or on the screens. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? For the last will be first, and the first last. The word of the Lord. Well, before I came here, I stopped off at Panera the, uh, to take advantage of the rewards I had accumulated. See, I have a rewards card there, and from time to time, they go ahead and tell me I have uh, something I can use there, so I go and use it. Uh, you may also have a rewards card there or at a variety of different establishments, uh, whether it's a Taste Buds card at Taste Unlimited or the coveted Gold Miles card at Delta or American Airlines. All of us, uh, if you are travel for business at all, you yearn to get more and more miles as you're part of the rewards club because maybe at some time you can go into the uh, coveted Delta Sky Miles suite in the air uh, airport and you can enjoy the leather upholstery, and you can uh, possibly get into first class and enjoy all the accoutrements of being one of the privileged few uh, to not drive uh, in the cattle cars, if you will, on the plane. It's good to be on the positive side of the rewards if you are part of the program, right? You get perks and you get benefits entree into the upper reaches and realms of the establishment. 
We have somewhat of a similar thinking, I think, in the kingdom of God. Really, there's coach, and then there's first class. All are saved, of course, who believe in Jesus Christ, but it would seem from the thinking, contemporary thinking, in Christian circles that are there are some who are more saved or more privileged, that enjoy a higher reward and status in the kingdom of God, whether it is uh, leadership responsibilities or the ability to enjoy Jesus on a more intimate level. Well, what does this parable say about that? For it flies directly in the face, if you will, of differing rewards and statuses in the kingdom of God. This passage tells us that there are equal blessings and benefits for all believers, regardless of their works here on planet Earth, precisely because of the grace and generosity of the landowner, God himself. It pushes against our culture. It pushes against our contemporary understanding of Christianity. But we must understand it if we want to move on in our Christian life. Because God's word assures us that God's grace assures us all of receiving equal blessings and benefits as children. So we can live in anticipation of a certain standing and a certain reward before God. Well, that's scandalous. And so I want to talk about three specific things. The first being the scandal of grace. Number two, I want to talk about the evidence for grace. Do you have any scriptural evidence besides this parable to back that up? And finally, I want to talk about the peace of grace, the peace that comes from understanding the truth that you are equally beloved before your father. Well, let's begin with number one, the scandal of grace. Jesus has been preaching about what is the kingdom of God. Indeed, it was the central message he talked about all the way uh, from the beginning of his ministry. And the kingdom of God is that a new king has come. Jesus has come into the world to defeat the enemy, to ransom and rescue his people, and to sanctify them and ultimately to bring them into the kingdom of God and to manifest physically what is spiritual now. That at one time in the future, and we don't know when it is, it could be 20 years from now, it could be 20 minutes from now, the trumpet will sound and the king will come and he will defeat death and there will be no more sin, no more enemies, no more wickedness. Well, last week I talked about who qualifies to be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus demonstrated that unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, in other words, not based on your status or your efforts or your achievements, you shall never enter it. Well, today we're talking about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Before this passage was the story of the rich young ruler, uh, which I didn't preach on, but maybe one day I will. And if you'll remember, a rich young ruler, he was rich, he was accomplished, he was also uh, uh, very good at keeping the commandments, came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, there's one more thing you have to do, right? After he said, I've kept all the commandments, go and sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell because he had great wealth. The issue wasn't the man's wealth, the issue was the fact that he had made his wealth an idol and he couldn't let go of it. And Jesus said something very powerful. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
In other words, it's only through the grace of God that we can let go of the idols that we hold on to in life and embrace Jesus Christ like a little child. And he says, so the last shall be first, referencing the rich young ruler. The disciples speak up. Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, Peter is doing the math here, saying, wait a second, if this guy who was rich couldn't get into the kingdom of God because he wouldn't give up his stuff, well, we have given up everything. What is there for us? The disciples, by the way, have been having a lot of issues about greatness, haven't they? They were arguing on the road. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Yet they were kind of keeping it down from Jesus. And so Jesus wants to answer Philip, excuse me, Peter and the disciples' question about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God through this parable. And I will try to explain it. For the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now it's harvest time in Israel. It's the same way wherever there's a harvest, whether you've been to the Napa Valley or not, there's a specific time when it's time to bring in the grapes and it's a short window. And so the landowner goes to find laborers because he doesn't stock enough people. And so he goes out in the morning. In fact, what this means is at 6 a.m., he, he's gone out to the marketplace. And in the marketplace are standing people who have no land. And they're looking for work, specifically for this harvest time, because all hands are on deck. And so he goes ahead and agrees with the laborers for a denarius a day to send them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius is good pay. It's actually what a Roman soldier would get uh, every day. And the reason that they are getting this pay of a Roman soldier is because they're going to work 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So off they go into the vineyard. But there's not enough people, apparently. He, he needs more hands. And so going out about the third hour, which would be 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, everybody knew what whatever was right would mean. The wages were standard. If, if you got there at 9 a.m., you would be paid three quarters of a denarius because you'd only work three quarters of the day. Everybody knew that was fair and right. And so it continues on. The landowner again goes to the marketplace at 12 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, and still there are people that have not been hired. And so, presumably saying the same thing, he sends them to the vineyard where they work. Indeed, this makes no sense from a practical perspective. At the 11th hour, 5 p.m., quitting time is at 6, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? Because no one has hired us, he said. You go into the vineyard too. And so they go and they work for an hour tops. And then evening comes. And this owner of the vineyard calls his foreman and says, go and pay them their wages, starting with the last first. Now the last come expecting to receive one twelfth of the denarii. That's all they've worked. And yet they received 12 times what they expected. Why did the landowner do it? Well, you can't feed a family for one on one twelfth of the denarii. Many of these people who were laborers, they, they weren't landowners. In other words, it was hand to mouth, day to day, having enough money to go home to feed your family or you would go hungry that night. 
And so they're delighted. It doesn't make sense, but I'm sure not one of them are saying, wait a second, I need to tell you that really you shouldn't be paying me a whole denarii. They just accept it and go quietly. But not so the others, right? Then he pays the people who've worked nine hours, a denarii. They raise their eyebrows, I'm sure, but they go. Six hours. Well, actually, uh, you know, same thing. But when they get uh, three hours, when they finally get to the people who have worked all day, 12 hours, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. I mean, if he gave the people who worked one twelfth a whole denarii, what's he going to give us? And lo and behold, they received a denarius. And on receiving it, it says they grumbled at the master of the house. Now, why are they grumbling? They're angry because it unfairly raises the 11th hour people to their own standing. They basically says it, say it, don't they? You have made them equal to us who have borne the scorching heat and the wind of the day. In fact, it looks like they're not even interested in picking up the denarius because they're so angry. But the landowner replied to them, friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Take up what belongs to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Literally in the Greek, is your eye evil? In other words, is there such evil coming out of your heart that you cannot see? that it is completely right and fair for me to do whatever I want with my generosity. See, the laborer failed to be thankful for his own wage because he was blinded by a self-interested lack of compassion for his fellow worker. And Jesus again says the same thing after the rich young ruler. So the last will be first and the first last. Now what's the point Jesus is trying to make? With the rich young ruler, when he said the last will be first and the first will be last, he's contrasting two groups of people, believers and unbelievers. The rich young ruler, who was first, if you will, in the eyes of the world, who had everything, became last in the sense that he was not coming into the kingdom of God. But Jesus changes this statement now to talk about believers and believers. The first will be last and the last will be first. Not in the sense of one not coming into the kingdom of God, but rather by God's grace, he shall pay all of them equal. Whether it be the disciple like Peter who's saying we've left everything, what's coming to us, or the thief on the cross. He's trying to communicate a point to Peter and he's trying to communicate a point to us. See, the denarius is heaven. Now, it's important you understand something. A parable is always about one point, okay? Don't take it too far. You need to understand what the point it is he's trying to make. Because is Jesus saying the first group who started at the beginning, do they deserve heaven? In other words, the denarius, which is heaven, it's a wage. They worked for it, therefore they get it. Of course not. Salvation is by grace. And by the way, they would have received nothing if they didn't get hired by the landowner. No, the point he's trying to make is that there are no levels 
of reward in heaven. We all receive the same blessings, the same happiness, the same joy, and the same privilege. Your and my reward and status and blessing will be the exact same as that of Mother Teresa. The exact same as that of the Apostle Paul. The exact same as that of the greatest Christian you know. Whether you are the disciple who came in in the first hour or the one on the 11th hour. Now that's rubbing some of us very, very raw and making some of us very, very uncomfortable. And it's also delighting some of us. But wait a second. Did not Jesus say to the disciples, promising them in the passage before that you will judge the tribes of Israel? But did he not also say to the Corinthians, those carnal Corinthians, who are causing all sorts of issues and having problems with sex in their church, that they would judge the whole world and even angels? It's hard to see the apostles' privilege as any greater honor, if indeed it is even limited to the twelve. Now, why does Jesus do this? The answer is quite simple. His grace. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? In other words, are we seeking to place upon God the rules and regulations of how he should treat people in his kingdom? When Jesus says it is by my standard, it is by my rules, do you begrudge the generosity that I show? See, nothing seems more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. We do this ourselves, don't we? As we evaluate the person to our right and the person to our left and their holiness and their involvement. But Jesus doesn't work like we do, does he? Heaven is not based on our performance, rather because of his generosity, his love, and his grace. You probably already know this, but the highest point of on, on the earth is Mount Everest, 29,035 feet. The lowest place on the earth is in the Mariana Trench on the bottom of the sea, 33,035 feet. And if I was to take Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench and put them right next to each other and stand at sea level, I would not be able to see the highest point and the lowest point because the distance that separates them is 12 miles. But I assure you that the perspective changes radically when I look at that difference from the planet Mars. It's just a minor blip, isn't it? Can't even see it. God's holiness is like Mars. And no matter how high you attain on this earth, which is by his grace, by the way, it is an infinite distance from the requirements of God for us. And ironically, it's the greatest of saints that understand this, isn't it? Paul, who says, this is a trustworthy saying, and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now I'm giving an illustration, but I'm not trying to make the point that God abrogates 
you know, who does what on planet Earth simply because it really doesn't make a difference. It's rather because of the generosity and the goodness and the love of God. See, God's grace is what called us, and God's grace is what rewards us. See, God's kingdom isn't like ours. And all too often in the church, we say we believe in grace, but the reality is we've just pushed the whole system to heaven. We've just moved it on, and we never got rid of it. The Christian life was like a free trial membership to an elite country club. For the first year, it was wonderful, but from then on, you pay through the nose. And some of us are paying right now. And we view God as a taskmaster. If I can be a little bit more obedient, then he will deal favorably with me sometime down the road. But when I fail, he's quick to punish. He's quick to pull out his notebook because he's making a list and he's checking it twice, isn't he? You may think to yourself, oh yes, I know I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I'm in. But I'm a wretch. And the reality is he despises me. Now he's going to let me in because he has to. But I'm going to sneak in the back. No rewards for me. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like heaven to me. So I guess my question for this, for you, is do you believe that? Do you believe in your heart of hearts that the same blessing and promise and inheritance to a Mother Teresa or an Apostle Paul is for you, waiting for you because of his generosity? The 11th hour, a Christian. See, you have to break from the culture of the world and even the culture of Christianity to grasp the reality and the truth that God's love for you is entirely, entirely separate from your performance for him. Well, this leads me to my second point. That is quite scandalous, Carlos. Do you have any more evidence to back it up? My first response would be, this is about as clear a parable as one can get dealing with the issue. But there is a host of evidence for this point. Many of you will say, well, this is counter-scriptural. We hear about rewards and about crowns and the last and the first and the greatest and the least. But careful exegesis of these points will illustrate what I am talking about. I'm actually going to plot, uh, I don't have time to cover all of the evidence but it's important that you look at it exhaustively. Don't take my word for it. Look at the scriptures. And so I will be posting on our webpage at RedeemerVB.com an in-depth examination that goes far deeper into what I'm going to talk about right now in terms of scriptural evidence. I want to make two arguments for you, one from logic and one from scripture, or several from scripture. The first is a logical argument because we are allowed to use common sense when we're talking about heaven. We know something of heaven from the scriptures, right? That there will be no sin in heaven. There will be no one who envies, no one who covets, no one who does wrong or evil or wickedness. We also know that there will be no pain or sadness. As Revelation 21, 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Heaven will simply be a place of perfection. We also know that there is a day of judgment in which people who are in Christ will be judged safe in Christ, saved in Christ to go to heaven. It's a pass-fail, if you will. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life will not enter the kingdom of God. And we know that entrance into heaven is based on the righteousness of Christ. But there is another sort of test that happens. 1 Corinthians 3.11, and I'm going to elaborate on a little bit, where everybody's work is tested, if you will, with fire. And based on that, you receive some sort of reward in heaven. That's the common thinking that goes out there. Now, what is this reward that we're supposed to receive in heaven? It doesn't really say clearly. So some believe it's an objective reward. You will receive more responsibilities, more leadership. Some believe it's subjective, that you will have a greater intimacy with Christ or a greater ability to enjoy Christ. By the way, or, by the way nowhere does it say that scripturally. How are we to reconcile this, that there will be inequalities in heaven, and yet it is a place of, uh, of no pain, no sadness, and no crying? The way people reconcile it normally is, is to say, well, people won't know those things. In other words, everyone will be completely happy, uh, and they won't uh, even know that someone has a higher standing in heaven, or they won't care. Which, of course, begs the question, why are there rewards in the first place? If nobody knows that people have different statuses or nobody cares that there are different statuses, why have them in the first place? The whole point of me getting the sky miles and doing all of it is so I can enjoy the lounge and the first class. And yet no one is going to have any different distinct experience as far as they can tell from anyone else. Additionally, what we're saying with this argument is that there are different levels of perfection in heaven, right? Some people have more responsibilities or ability to enjoy Jesus, and therefore they have a more perfect experience in heaven. Well, that's a self-effacing argument. There's no such thing as different levels of perfection. There's only perfect and not perfect. This doesn't make sense logically. We're twisting things around. But what about the scriptural argument? Let's look at just a couple of things. Some people talk about the fact that we are given crowns, if you will, and these crowns show that we receive different levels of rewards in heaven. I'll give you just a couple of scriptural references to crowns, and the first is 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but, uh, wreath excuse me, or crown, but we an imperishable. It's very clear here that he's talking about the perishable crown and the imperishable crown as that of salvation. Everybody who competes in the games and wins receives a crown. And nowhere does it go into the distinction between the crowns, whether yours has rubies and mine has not. Because he's referencing the crown of salvation. The next one, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to those who love him. What is the crown of life? It's referencing, of course, salvation, not a degree of reward. When you, if you want to go and you look we, uh, in the blog post that I put, we'll reference every place where a crown is in the Bible and discuss it. And you will see that the crown is talking about eternal life. Well, what about this fiery test, Carlos? Remember that on that day of judgment, our works will be examined. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, in other words, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will sur suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, one thing that's very clear in this passage, we're referencing believers. This is not a test of salvation, but rather on this foundation of Jesus Christ, with what of your life did you build upon it? There will be a testing of the work. Now it says that if the person's work survives the test, in other words, the test of being built on the foundation of Christ, they will receive a reward. But if anyone's, it doesn't specify what a reward means, but if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss. Normally when we read that, we read, he will suffer a loss of his reward. But it doesn't say that. Indeed, from the Greek, if you look at it, the most logical explanation is he will suffer loss of his work. He will see the work that he's done in his life burnt up. The reality is all of us will see some burning during that time, won't we? For some of the things that we do in our life are certainly not on the foundation of Jesus Christ, myself including, myself included. See, what he's saying is that some of us will have the satisfaction during that time of seeing, during this judgment time, that yes, that thing that I did there, because of Christ and for Christ, it survived the test. While others will see things burned up in their life that they really didn't place on Christ. The summary I want to make of this point is it's very clear that each one of us will have a unique encounter with Jesus Christ. But nowhere does this specify that whatever happens during this time has eternal ramifications. We've added that into our uh, nomenclature. And it's very clear that the day of judgment, the purpose of Christians standing before God's bar of justice is to declare them acquitted not to embarrass them before the entire cosmos for all of their failings. This is going to be a, a day of joy, a day of happiness, a day of rejoicing. Read the book of Revelation and you will see that time and time again. And we have taken this one thing, this one little thing, and we've stretched it out to eternity, as we also often do. As a preacher, when 99 te people tell me I preached a great sermon and one person tells me I preached a terrible sermon and I place everything on that one thing. 
the one who is going to be celebrated and remembered for having ransomed the redeemed and given us new robes of righteousness is Jesus Christ. I could go on and on and on. What about the greatest and the least in the kingdom of God? How about this, Matthew eleven eleven? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now there's only two explanations for that. He's talking about heaven after the resurrection and the judgment day, and every single person happens to have lived a more holy life than John the Baptist, or he's talking about the fact that John the Baptist is going to die, but Christ is going to afterwards die, be resurrected, and give his Holy Spirit out at Pentecost to people who are going to receive the Spirit. In this life, you will discover that the greatest and the least in the kingdom of God, when you read them carefully, are always referring to the present. And there are some during this life that we should revere as greater in the kingdom of God because of the holiness in their life. But at the time of the resurrection, we shall all be changed. We shall all be holy. We shall all bear the image of Christ. And he's not talking about that time. I could go on and on and on. But the point I'm trying to make is this. The reason that we believe these things is because they're so built into our culture that we have massaged them into our scripture. I'm not saying that merit is a bad thing in secular society. You work hard in sports. You work hard in academics and receive the benefits and the blessings of doing so. But that is not the way the kingdom of God works. Nobody merits salvation or rewards in heaven because of their holiness, but rather because of the grace of God. Because the ultimate goal that God has had from the beginning has always been adoption. I have four children. Some of them are smarter than the other. Some of them are kinder than the others. They all have varying degrees of gifts and abilities. But if I could, and they will receive different blessings and rewards in this earth because of how they conduct themselves in the world. But if I could, if I could perfect them all to be the best them that they were made to be, I would. But I can't. But if I could give them all the same blessing, the same benefits, the same enjoyment of life, would I? Of course I would. Any parent would answer in the affirmative of that. The point I'm trying to make is Jesus Christ can and he does. And I can say with all honesty that I'm his favorite. And so are you. And the best lies in store for me and for you, whether you're the 11th hour Christian or the first. It's grace and grace from the worst to the first. And everything in you might say, Carlos, you have no idea. I'm not the Mother Teresa. I'm the one with the alcohol problem. I'm the one with the abortion. I'm the divorced one. I'm the one with self-esteem and doubt issues. 
I'm the one who failed in my business. I'm the one who disappointed my parents. God doesn't look at you like we look at you. Are you angry because of how I choose to lavish my grace upon each of these people? The great thing for you also, unbeliever, if you don't believe in Christ, if you came here just seeking, you know, I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. Didn't grow up in it. Didn't know Jesus from a top hat. It's never too late. Whether you're the 11th hour or you're the 5th hour or the 1st hour. Because that's the way grace works. God's grace assures us all of receiving equal blessings and benefits as children. So live in anticipation of a certain standing and a certain reward. Well, let me close with this, the peace of grace. The peace of grace. Why you might be rebelling against this in your mind is this question. Carlos, if you take away this, what's the motivation to be holy? What I find disturbing is that's the same argument against salvation by grace, isn't it? If you tell people that they receive salvation because of Jesus Christ's work, what's the motivation to live a holy life? Didn't Paul cover that in Romans 6, by the way? I encourage you to read that. See, the number one motivation of how this motivates our heart is this. If that's what you have for me, God, then like Paul, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. A life in which all of the blessings and benefits are based on your love for me and not my accomplishments. What else do I want than that? We chase after so many things that do not care for us. There's no greater motivation than wanting to grasp the import of this God who has such an inheritance waiting for me. The Apostle Paul and Mother Teresa for an 11th hour Christian. And the second motivation is simply this, a profound sense of gratitude. A person rescued from near drowning does not need to be given additional resources for expressing deep and heartfelt thanks to his rescuer. If our motivation to serve and love Christ is little, there the are really only two reasons. One, we've forgotten his grace and we simply need to remember it. Or two, we have a notion of grace that's defective. We've simply moved it on into the kingdom of heaven. And we've resigned ourselves to the fa fact that we are the one that gets the crumbs and the closet in the kingdom of God. See, the reason I love him is because I don't have to. You can't love someone who has a gun to your head. One of the greatest questions that I want you to think about as you go home and spend time today is, why do you love Jesus? What's really the reason? Is it fear? Or is it because I can't help it? Because he just loves me. How this will radically change the way that you see yourself, it will also change the way you see others. That this is not a competition. I don't have to finish first. I just got to finish. We'll encourage you to say to the person to your right and to your left, don't give up. Keep running. It's worth it what lies in store for you and me.
I've used all our time and more. And so I simply close with the thought I started with. God's grace assures us all of receiving equal blessing and benefits as children. So live in anticipation of a certain standing and a certain reward. Let's pray in Christ's name. Father, we don't know how to even, uh, what to say at your generosity and your love. That you would consider us 11th hour Christians to receive all the blessings and the benefits. Lord, help us not to be first hour Christians that look down upon others and help us not to be 11th hour Christians who refuse to accept the denarius that you've given us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.